I said it right. Yeah, you said it right. <laughs> um, how did Tom become who he is today? Uh, so when I was growing up, I was super lucky because I grew up in the huge city of Dallas, Texas. But there was this gigantic field across the street from me that went undeveloped for years. And so I grew up riding motorcycles. And before we had airsoft guns, we had BB guns. And we were insane enough to have BB gun fights out there. And it was a playground, uh, to say the least. And also, my dad let me have pre- free range of all the power tools he owned oh, in the wow. garage. So I, I just grew up making things. I love to make things. And then I got into where I was even fixing our lawnmower when I was 10. So uh, I started just working on things. And as I worked on them, I started to think, boy, they could make this easier to maintain or this could have been designed better. And so even though I was better at life sciences in high school, and I, I wasn't that talented with physics and stuff like that. I just loved it. I had a passion for it. So I went off to University of Texas, Austin, and started studying mechanical engineering. And it, it really was challenging for me at first. I remember feeling lost in statics and dynamics. And this was in the years where there was no such thing as data science. But, Sarah, I, I frequently laugh. People will say, well, why did you switch to data science? And I'm like, dude. I was doing least squares regression manually as a freshman in physics lab. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so, yeah, we, we didn't mm. do computing all the time in those days. Uh, I started on punch cords. Um, thank God in that same semester we went to terminals. But I always gravitated more toward the predictive modeling side of mechanical engineering and really got into electrical engineering, too. So um, after getting my degree, I looked at my options and I really got attracted by the possibility of going through the Naval Nuclear Program, but as a civilian to serve the Naval Nuclear Program. So in the end, I ended up learning a lot of theory to practice with power plants and nuclear engineering. And, but that bug of predictive modeling kept gnawing at me. And so I went to grad school and I really wanted to emphasize uh, predictive modeling. And I switched toward, I had been doing what we call energy fluid systems. Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating because that's the power plant stuff. But I just couldn't get the attraction of control system design and kinematics and dynamics out of my head. And by that time, I, I loved it. So I started emphasizing that in my graduate school work. And the predictive modeling skills just kept growing and growing and but when you're doing control system design which is really physical system modeling and all of that um i started even then to see that oh there's limits to the way we're going about this i mean the first limit that was broken was moving away from analytical calculus to digital calculus so you could simulate systems on a computer before you built them which is just fascinating to me but there's a type of modeling that engineers do that's very closely related to data science, which is called empirical modeling. Yeah. And even when I did my dissertation research, um, there was one empirical model for heat transfer that just totally saved my bacon on my uh, ability to get really good predictions. And that got my attention, but 
At that same time, before data science was even a term, I started studying uh, neural networks and taking classes on it and expert systems. Fell in love with it because I could see that even though we were kind of at the early stages of that, it had a lot of promise. And there were some laughable examples back then of how they were mistrained. But I remember the thrill in grad school the first time I got my own neural network program from scratch because we didn't have Python or or NumPy or SciPy or TensorFlow back then. We had to code them from scratch in C. And I even had to program my own memory allocate. Yes, you should. But it was fast because you programmed it in C, right? It was fast, but on... What was I, at best, I was using a 486, which (laughs) I don't know if anyone can even relate to what a 486 is anymore, but it it was fast and we we could do quite a bit of work because it was in C, it did help, yeah. Everyone's like, you know, you can dev out these models in Python or R, if you will, but if you want to go really fast, you're going to be doing that in Scholar, you're going to be doing it in C. That's what I always hear, one or the other. Well, but at the same time, I found, um, so I haven't been using Python too long, only 20 plus years, but, <laughs> but when that I, beats my, <laughs> by a lot. Uh, it's my joke, but when I discovered it, I felt like I was unleashed. It was so easy to program in. And, and by the way, I loved Fortran. I love C. I even like C plus plus when it was new, but when I discovered Python, I really felt like I was set free. But then I, I, I did. I worried, like you were saying, about the speed. And then I discovered NumPy, because NumPy's been around that long, too. And it was amazing that you could do all this math in parallel. And it, it was definitely fast. And multi-threading and all <clears throat> of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's been, there was one time where I needed some serious speed, and I did some C extensions for Python, and it was painful. But that was the only time, most of the time, NumPy will get it done for you with reasonable speed. We've been using a lot of like PySpark and things like that. And so everything runs so fast across millions and millions of data points. That's awesome. I'm a big believer in learning PySpark as soon as you need to. But if, if you're deep into the concepts and you've learned a lot of tools in the past, um, I'm hoping the employers, when they put out job postings, will be more uh, will be more tool agnostic. Like, if you've got a good history of learning tools, we don't care what tools you know now. Because, quite frankly, someone could say, oh, yeah, I have extensive uh, experience with TensorFlow, but they haven't used it two years, and it's upgraded so much, you could feel like you're starting completely over. But if you've learned a lot of tools in the past, it's no big deal. I keep getting asked, like, <coughs> why don't you list your packages that you're familiar with? I'm like, because if you can pick up two or three packages, you can pick up five or six or seven Absolutely. or eight more. And it's, you know, it. and if you've picked up four or five languages to do data science already, what's picking up, you know, Scholar or something like that? It's exactly. Just, you know already how to do it. It's the act of learning that's important. Absolutely. And I completely agree with that. Once you've learned a few tools and you've, you've learned how to master them pretty quickly, any new tools, no big deal. So one thing I kind of wanted to hit on was that we both have Nuke experience, and I thought that was really odd. I was like, another Nuke person? I didn't what? know you had Nuke experience. I was That's really awesome. Surprised. Well, <coughs> mine's over at the INL. 
Uh, Mine too. Oh, okay, cool. Because back in the day when I served with the Naval Nuclear Program as a civilian, but I went through Naval Nuclear Power School with the ensigns, but as a civilian for Westinghouse. And um, then I went through prototype training with them. But this is before it was, in fact, I was one of the last groups to train on land. Then they they started bolting the old subs to a port and training people in retired submarines. And so it my training days were before that. So I was at the INEL, and that's where they did the first submarine power plant test before the Nautilus, which I th- they, they have all of that mothballed now. It's kind of like a museum out there now, but it's, it was fascinating back in the day. Um, very intensive program, but I'm very honored to have gone through it too. Well, I <coughs> just went through it as a statistician, so not at the same depth, but it was cool to see that we both had nukes intersecting yeah. in our background. And, and at the INEL, that's really cool. They call it the INL now. They dropped yeah. the E, but it's, well, everyone knows when you say INEL that what exactly. you mean nowadays. They've been through a lot of name changes, actually. So, uh, what is one of your biggest joys in life? Oh, wow, that's... it. I hope I don't make people uncomfortable saying this, but I would be lying to not say this. It's my faith. It is my my spiritual faith. Mm-hmm. And I'm always happy to talk about that. <laughs> but in kind of in tune with that, I, I love our analytical arts. But it, it dawned on me decades ago, boy, we spent a lot of time studying this stuff. It would sure be nice if we could, and I didn't think about it this clearly at the time, but abstract it, conceptualize it, and apply it to other areas of our lives. So the first time I got a clue of this was when Franklin and Covey joined forces. They had this image in their planners that looked like a feedback control system. And I went, wait, they're applying that to growth. Why didn't I think to do that? That's awesome. And I started looking for other areas to extend the powerful, beautiful concepts we learn all the time, trying to apply it to other areas of my life. Mm -hmm. For example, um, I'm just a student of reinforced learning, but I'm in love with it. And I I programmed my own uh, environment just because I'm a masochist and wanted to do that. And Visual Python's super powerful to do that kind of stuff in. But Watching my little stupid reinforced learning agent, how it would go about learning, I found it so instructive. I found it smarter than me at times because it would just venture out and it would learn every once in a while. It'd stop and say, how am I doing? Look back and make some calculations and they're just estimates of estimates and then it would move on. And I thought, I need to be more like that because I, more than anyone I've ever met, can get uh, analysis paralysis if I'm not very cautious about it. <clears throat> so what's some of your favorite packages for reinforced learning? Uh, oh, uh, Python well. <laughs> and visual <laughs> Python. No, it, in fact, when I'm learning something new, I tend to avoid the libraries and modules. Mm-hmm. So I'm forced to learn how to code it from scratch. Yeah. And in fact, I, I love NumPy and I, I'm not encouraging people to not use NumPy or SciPy or TensorFlow or PyTorch or any of those. I'm just saying, if, if you really hardcore want to understand the concepts very deeply, mm-hmm. it really pays to program everything from scratch. So I made a very basic linear algebra toolkit because I realized, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to need that. And then 
I made my own uh, closed um, system solvers and my own gradient descent solvers. I just wanted to see what it looked like under the hood. And then I got a little interrupted from that when I felt like I needed to jump ahead to reinforce learning and, and jump ahead to transformers. But um, I would say uh, I don't have a favorite package, um, but I've never come across one that I hate either. But I do really like NumPy because it's that next level up and it does take a lot of burden off your hands programming-wise. It does. <clears throat> So you're a doctor, aren't you? Yes, but I can't like fix your thyroid or something. Well, hopefully. <laughs> of I the think physical it's still sciences. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a PhD. That's right. And I loved getting it. You loved getting it? Yeah, I did. When did you decide that like <clears throat> when did you find out what a PhD was and when did you decide that is for me? I had this um, high ideal in my head that there was almost nothing better to be in life than a professor. And I, I was, I wanted to be a college professor. And there was something that cured me of that, getting my PhD. <laughs> now, I don't mean that I wouldn't still like to go be a professor someday, but um, I realized, okay, there's evils in academia, just like there's evils in industry. And, um, you know, I went through a cynical stage as a younger man and had to learn, okay, quit being so critical and judgmental. The world's not this um, ideal place and the adults really don't know everything. They seem to pose themselves as knowing. <laughs> so just try not to be that way as, as you move through life. But it took me a while to, to get over all of that. I think <clears throat> a lot of people that end up on that path for higher education have that moment where they're like, I want to be a professor. I know I did. And a lot of people I talk to also say, like, oh, I wanted to be a professor. And then somehow the reality of academia hits us in the gut. And we're just like, yeah. maybe this isn't for me, but I respect anyone who's a professor entirely. And Absolutely. They do amazing work. They do. And there's evils in every sector of our technical world. Um, there's things about... Um, the whole, the whole scientific community as a whole that I think are holding us back. P-value hacking would be one of them. Are always trying to like, you always have to have yes. a significant P-value. Why can't we publish insignificant P-values? Hey, I did this and it didn't work out. That's also a piece of knowledge. I Why totally agree. Yes. Uh, publishing more failures. Um, and, and in fact... When I listened to professors while I was a grad student talk about some of the tricks, and I'm doing that in quotes with, oh, I guess we are being <laughs> yeah, video. Yeah, we are, yes. Um, <laughs> it, it was interesting, some of the silly tricks they would pull just to get their paper published after it had been rejected the first time. I went, do I want to play those games? I don't know. And it's publish or die. <clears throat> you need X publications with X collaborators within X time. And yes. And I didn't like that aspect of it. But then again, uh, being a PhD in industry is not um, a dream world either. So <laughs> I think what I've learned to do, Sarah, this is probably, I wished that I could have heard an older gentleman say this when I was younger is, hey, the greatest joy you're going to have is watching your personal growth and getting better at learning over time. Focus on that. Don't get too cynical about the way the world is. And just, just enjoy your growth and your accomplishments. You can't do any better than that. 
And frankly, that um, Solomon taught me that years ago, but did I listen very well? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I love career. I would consider myself a career woman, but I have not found so much joy as that I find in my children, like my child, yes. or my family, my family unit. Um, but I love doing academic achievement, writing papers. But I never knew that, like, being so career-driven that I would enjoy my child so much and watching them grow and then learn, or even teaching other people. Like, having – I love teaching other people data science and watching that aha and that light up in their eyes. And that is a beautiful thing that sometimes I'm like, I'm hitting roadblocks, I'm hitting roadblocks, but, like, teaching someone else, like, this is the beauty of a neural network in there. Oh, I agree with you completely. I'm a little bit into kids. I only have nine legal kids, but then <laughs> you keep adopting. I yes, think yes, yes, and and then I keep adopting around the world. I, I, I call my other kids. They're not illegal kids. They're just non-legal kids. So, kids from India, Africa, South America, and they all call me dad. And we have a a community that we've grown. I, I founded it, but I couldn't have done it alone. It's called Integrated Machine Learning and AI, and it's a blast. And between that and the company I work for, I have never had a better time in my career. It's been great. It's been beautiful <clears throat> to, like, watch that grow because, you. you know, for a couple of minutes there, I was like, how did he do that? But it's just a lot of attention and care and passion. It's amazing. I was talking to uh, a friend of mine on LinkedIn one time, Abigail Shackley, and I said, I'm just shocked. How many people are reaching out to me for mentoring? But Abby, all I'm doing is being kind and pointing out to them it's a difficult career, but it's very rewarding too. So basically, I'm just kind to them and and, uh, treat them like a father. (laughs) And it's amazing. I'm always blown away by how inspired they are by me. And I'm thinking, are you kidding? You guys are inspiring me. And but we literally call ourselves a family now, and it's growing fast, and it, it's benefiting people beyond my imagination. I'm quite pleased. I think but, I might be a part of it a little awesome. bit. <laughs> and we're very honored that you are. <laughs> but it's, it's a very beautiful community to be a part Thank of. You. Like, you have a question, and everyone responds with kindness. Exactly. And there are some communities you join, and there is no response unless you're one of like the top X members asking a question, but yeah. everyone responds to everybody. Everyone's kind. I'm glad you saw and that. It's beautiful. You know, it's nice because we have a superstar family member now, Dennis Rothman, who I, I look up to so much, but he just treats me like an equal. And he is, he is really an AI Titan from his career, but he shows up and he's even inspired by the way our community interacts, but we have a name for it. We, we have a committee that helps orchestrate things, but it's not called a leadership committee. We purposefully called it a stewardship stewardship committee, and it's to serve the family. But the real leader of integrated machine learning and AI is a spirit called More Together. And we started out with that spirit to say, I don't want to know more than you or be more skilled than you. As I get more knowledgeable and more skilled, I want to bring you along with me. Oh, and by the way, as you gain more knowledge and skill than me in an area, would you help me? And it's like we're a mountain climbing group (laughs) and it's working. That's what's so exciting. One of the best things I've heard recently is you are the sum of the five people 
that you like spend the most time with obviously outside of family especially if you have nine kids <laughs> but yeah. like thinking about life in that sort of terms is just like a little bit of a paradigm shift for me like do mm -hmm. I want to be like the five people I spend my most time with and do I admire them and, and do I want to grow in that direction and if not you need to make a change in your group I love the way you put that. And as you were explaining that, it, it hit me. This might be a shock to people after hearing us talk this way. I was an only child. <laughs> okay. I'm an only child too. <laughs> Interesting. And I had an awesome, uh, he, I don't like to call him a foster brother, but just for those that are listening, he was a foster brother. My mom met him when she was teaching. Our family fell in love with him and he lived with us for about three years, but he, he was an orphan. And, uh, but we, we just sponsored him and he lived with us and I still, we still stay in touch, even though my parents are deceased. But I think of the number of paradigm shifts I've had in my life and what you were just describing with your child and, um, and our children and, and then our greater extended family that we create as we get, grow up. Um, it's been a big paradigm shift for me to shift from thinking of myself as a individual to more as a, um, not even a community leader. I really think of myself as a community servant. And I, I really get into studying the history of math and science, and I'm always blown away by it because the big advancements were made when there were communities and they were integrating their knowledge like we're talking about now. And it, it was a supportive community. And the greatest inter integration in the ancient world was in the golden age of Islam at the House of Wisdom in Baghdad because unlike the Library of Alexandria, they integrated knowledge even from the Indian world. And that's how Al-Khwarizmi was able to come up with algebra and Abu Kamil was able to come up with systems of linear equations, etc. But um, unfortunately, as it often happens, the the golden age of Islam was uh, declining. And thankfully, it, it, it just blows me away we don't talk about this stuff more, but this brave young man named Adelard from Britain traveled through Spain and Italy and uh, Eastern Europe and came all the way to the House of Wisdom before it crumbled and brought all that knowledge back and started teaching it. By the way, Brits... And I don't mean just Brits. You're but I mean, what would have happened if he hadn't done that? Exactly what I'm getting at. And, and, and we, we as a people, because you and I look like we're both Japhethites, but basically Europeans in, in oh. background. Um, if we were quite, our ancestors were quite dark in that time compared to the Muslims, the Arabs. And if he hadn't brought all that knowledge back and mastered it and taught it, we wouldn't be sitting here today with all this technology probably. We, we owe them that much. But the it might have Arabs been lost, too. honestly. I agree. I agree. It, it was almost like a scarlet thread. Like, oh, so many times it could have died. Like when the Alexandrian library burned. If the scholars hadn't dispersed and kept things going, but they couldn't keep it going at the same rate. And thank God the Arabs picked it back up, picked up the charge and integrated even greater. But yeah, that. by the way, the time of the Crusades was ugly. There was fault on both sides. But following that time, Adelard had the courage to travel all the way back to Baghdad to get that. Yeah, it's amazing. The, um, 
in a day and an age where like you typically didn't travel more than two to three miles from where oh, yeah. you were born. Oh yeah, exactly. Just, You're hitting yeah. the nail on the head. That it it was it was a life's work just to do those travels and gain the knowledge and get back safely. Yeah, you're you're hitting it. Jeffrey, no, Jonathan Lyons, The House of Wisdom. It's a book. It goes over the history of what I'm talking about now and Adelard's the hero from Britain. Yeah. Sounds Many like heroes a book one. I yeah. Need to pick up. <laughs> it would be good, yeah. Um but yeah, we we have we stand on the shoulders of great people. I mean, you think about it, Newton, um Faraday, Maxwell, Einstein and but then it goes on and I uh, I know some people uh, don't like open AI but you've got to hand it to them they're brilliant for how many intellects they brought together and how many resources they brought together to push um, natural language processing and many other things in our our uh, deep learning arts to new levels very quickly I mean, everyone has differing opinions about GPT-3 and how it's not publicly available. And now there's all these like GPT-3 lookalikes that are open source and available and how their data sources are more non-biased. But I mean, we're humans. We have a bias. No matter what language you pick up or where you get it from, it's going to have a bias. I was relieved. Uh, (laughs) It was funny. I put together a modern day learning guild on LinkedIn because I wanted to learn transformers and Dennis's book wasn't out yet. And Dennis even joined our group, but he couldn't tell us he was about to publish the book. He had to keep it secret. But um, it it was interesting starting to learn transformers and get traction with it before, you know, trying to learn something new from technical publications alone when you haven't been in the know on the historical track of the key publications that's so hard oh it's so mind-numbing and now like where do you start exactly and you you almost have to know the trail and go back to the key papers and even appreciating why they called the famous paper attention is all you need why they called it that it's it's kind of hilarious but thank god for these heroes on youtube that they do amazing uh, visualizations of the math flow through a basic transformer. And you're, you see them and you go, thank you. God, I needed that so much. <laughs> and then you read a book like Dennis's and it's got all this amazing uh, centricity of necessary code to get up to speed with transformers. And it, it was just so easy to learn in this day and age compared to hundreds of years ago it's it's we're so fortunate educationally i mean the the difference like hundreds of years ago in classes was like you wouldn't know how to read and someone who was doing research would like the idea of doing science and everything was upper class and they did it for amusement it wasn't for the furthering of science a lot of the times it was like i'm rich i am bored i'm gonna go play with my chemistry set and you know that's kind of a lot of the stories that I heard. Now It's not far the, off the truth. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, there's obviously, they wrote papers, they're part of scientific societies and things like that. But the it's shifted a lot in that almost yes. everyone can read. I Now the thing that's gating it is I need $50 to be able to read this article online unless I'm going to go be a pirate somewhere, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I that you're making such important points. And yet... 
when you study the depth of character of Faraday and Maxwell and how deeply philosophical they were too and how much they wanted to bless the public with what they were learning, you think, oh, we need to get back to that level of philosophical character. For example, Faraday would hold public demonstrations on the things that he was discovering and building and said, these aren't for the elite. They're to be shared with everyone. And he, he was one of those uh, exceptions to what you were saying. Mm-hmm. He basically was very self-educated. He wasn't, wasn't a silver spoon kind of guy, but still a deep thinker and not bitter or cynical about the path he had to take either. Well, non-data science, I absolutely adore Tesla and how he thought energy exactly. would be free with the Tesla coil and how they didn't want that. But that's a completely different story. Yes. <laughs> but the idea that this education and these materials should be freely accessible. and I mean, even the advent of a public library yes. it is within the last century. Right. And having access to books when they were expensive and now books aren't that expensive and now we can just pull it up on our phone and read whatever we want. That's a great point. When you think back to the Library of Alexandria or the House of Wisdom, they weren't so much libraries as they were communities. They were research communities and they were doing more things than just math and science and some of them actually had the forethought to realize how much better off would society be if we had an accurate calendar or we had accurate timekeeping? And a lot of people don't realize that was what was driving the astronomical studies that were so common back in those time periods for the, for the great scientists of those days. And some of it was fueled by astrolog- astrological signs and wanting True. to predict the future. And some of it was actually wanting to have an accurate calendar and We've moved a little bit away from mysticism. Yeah, and like alchemy. <laughs> yes. To, like, to your same point, yeah. <laughs> Let's try to make gold out of anything. But now we know if we remove electrons, we can, and neutrons and protons, we can change an atom. But yeah. the amount of radiation and all of that might as well just go dig it up from the ground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are magical materials, by the way. But it, 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 you know, make fun of me if you will. I'll still keep working on my anti-gravity device in my shop. <laughs> I haven't made any progress, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> One of the coolest things that I've read about is, um, and I can't recall exactly where, where, but teleportation. We can get atoms from one location to another. We just can't maintain the correct structure. So yeah. an apple turns into applesauce, if you will. Right. And that But it's the correct me. number of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or there's m- conservation of mass awesome <laughs> yes and the other cool thing other than anti-gravity is uh smart dust it's actually there are papers published about like nanites and they're real it's not cool. scientific it's it's a little crazy and out there yeah that the, we could well, boy we could go on a real tangent with that i've spent quite a bit of time studying how uh, proteins are made inside cells and it it's wow, it's the most brilliant factory we've ever seen in the history of, well, anything we've seen because it doesn't look like it's man-made. It's all these amazing molecular machines and, you know, bringing a copy from the cell nucleus out and uh, manufacturing a protein from all these amino acids. In a, in a, it's mind-blowingly complex and beautiful and elegant, but I, I bring all that up because 
a lot of the great advancements we've made in data science team seem to center around copying nature very well. And so we need to keep doing that until we've completely exploited it because it, it's sure uh, working for us very well so far. I'd like to add too, that this is just something that seems apparent over and over. Computing power it's, it's almost good that it's been holding us back. It's still holding us back in the data sciences, but human ingenuity keeps winning, and it even keeps winning to push computational power forward. Uh, I'll be very excited to see, um, and I, I think it will probably eventually happen, quantum computing coming ubiquitous, but what a mind-blowing change that will be when we mm-hmm. get there. Um, the thought that I, I'm still learning this from people that are learning it. I'm not even an official student of it yet, but the thought that all of these, uh, I can't even remember what you call them, the, the um, well, the I'll call them bits for now. I guess they're qubits. Mm-hmm. They're kind of waiting, and then the solution happens all at once. I'm like, that's just so mind-blowing. I love it. I mean, I got to talk to uh, an individual who was building out at least the software solution, yes. not the actual uh they're like simulators right Mm -hmm. yeah cool and so they were an expert at that but it's just absolutely fascinating that you know schrodinger's cat it is alive and a dead and dead until you actually look in the box (laughs) simultaneously and that's basically what quantum computing is it is a one and it is a zero until you look in the box yeah it's so cool i i it took me a while to wrap my mind around it. And then some of the people that I mentor are already taking quantum courses, so they already know more than me about it. But the little bit that I've talked to them, I've, I've finally gotten my brain wrapped around, okay, I, 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 I'm at first base, thank you. <laughs> and I, I'm eager to study more, but boy, there's so much to learn, so little time. You have to, it's like you have to triage what you learn now. There's a lot. I do have to say, though, the really striking thing is the last big data science thing to come out was Transformers. Yes. And it's been about a year, and there hasn't been any gigantic advancement in the same way that Transformers has happened. So there's some, there's some things there that seem very promising and aren't getting attention. Um, oh, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> so, But one of them was Linformers, which was a, a way to linearize the solution at the attention mechanism stage, which... Uh, as Marchin Beards would tell me, my po- brilliant Polish friend, remember, they're just graph neural networks. So it's it's kind of a little disconcerting to me. We call them attention mechanisms, but they're graph neural networks. But they're in that greater structure of the transformer. But the um, if you could solve that part of it in the back propagation of that deep learning architecture a little more quickly a huge benefit to the training time so there's been these things called linformers that work more with a dot product um, so that and and there's faster training with very little loss in accuracy but i recently heard that they're replacing attention mechanisms now with Fourier transforms so i think it, it's we're kind of in the we, we had this big vertical leap where we in, the transformers were invented and now we're looking, kind of moving into a horizontal stage where, okay, now let's be a Henry Ford mentality. Let's make the training of these faster. And I think that's kind of what's going on, and it's just not as sexy maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, but to me, thinking of replacing graph, the graph neural network part, the attention part with a Fourier transform, 
that's very novel. That's uh, it's a, but it's not the leap in architecture. It's just a leap in training, right? And there are always like piece like Fourier transports aren't new. They're actually quite old. I've been exactly. using them just in a different way. Exactly. And so there's a lot of things, a lot of the papers I've written myself, or you take something from over here, like like psychological um, analytical techniques, and you apply them over here in nukes, if you will. And everyone's like, oh, that's different. It's like, no, neural nets have been around since 1950. They're not crazy and new. Exactly. (laughs) And so uh, I do understand that. But I, I thought it was so odd that that's yeah. what I'm hearing a lot from the community. Yeah, it's it's almost like we need to settle out for a while. The, oh, these are so awesome. For those that are listening, um, and you've seen me give this talk, where when I realized they weren't going to share GPT-3, I had a, oh, crap moment. Did, is this the end of AI democratization? And then finally I'm reading Dennis's book, and he points out this transformer. It could be trained with one good CPU and a good GPU, and it could spank GPT-3 on a specific task that you would want to aim it at. And my mind started racing around all these philosophical ways that a person just working on a basic computer could still, with great human ingenuity, still push the boundaries of machine learning and data science and AI with with a basic computer because we keep being clever about it. So that's why I, I personally was excited about Linformers and, and Fourier Transforms because it makes the level of architecture you can do even that much more advanced without having to have, I love to quote this because it took me a while to memorize it, 280 plus thousand CPUs, 10,000 GPUs for the supercomputer that trained GPT-3. And when you, when you get into studying what GPT-3 can do, it really is a huge, huge step for us. But at the same time, it's, it's a proof of concept. It's saying we can still go further. And the nice thing, once those kind of models are shared, um, we can transfer, do transfer learning with them to make them do yet better. But right now, what GPT-3 can do GPT-3 can do with what we call zero shot. It, it's it's quite amazing. It really, I mean, basically, you're not even giving it a hint. You're just saying, "Hey, tell me this," and it tells you that. And it's like, "Dang, that's pretty good." <laughs> they do have open source GPT GPT-3 lookalikes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I can't remember the exact name, but I was reading up on it, and nice. it's in Hugging Face now. So oh, it's actually awesome. like super accessible. Um, and I can totally put that in the description later. <laughs> Let, let's, I think you'll agree with me. Let's give a message to Hugging Face together. Thank you, Hugging Face. You're a great repository of all these transformer models. So we much. love you. But dang, there's just so many models, it's hard to find the best one you need. It's amazing how many people contribute to that. that that's a huge it's library. It's a democracy of transformers. <laughs> but it's amazing. Yeah, it really is. So... Uh, the whole point of this podcast is to find out how you are successful because we want to be like you. Oh, so how, that's scary. I know, I know. And that's no pressure, I swear. <laughs> no, it's scary you because have I have so made, much data science knowledge and it's so cool. Thank you. I, I mean, I don't really feel like I'm like when I have friends like Guy Sankari and Dennis Rothman and Marching Bairds and that 
it's it's amazing to me that they ever look up to me. I guess they look up to me for certain reasons, and I look up to them for certain reasons. But I, I'm blown away that uh, I, I know plenty of people smarter than me is what I'm saying. And I, I just love learning and growing. I, I would say to anyone, don't get caught up in imposter syndrome or if you're not as smart as person A or B, just enjoy growing and learning. That To me, that's... That's the word I want to give to every young data scientist. And also, please, um, it wasn't until my current role that I even had a data science job title. Was I, was I doing predictive analytics and, and data automation and data science before that? Absolutely. As much as I could because I loved it. But I never stopped to think, oh, I really need a data science role title. And, I, and now... Uh, that's the biggest caution I give young people when they're all worried about getting into data science. Be a data scientist then. Just do it, no matter what your role. Use it to benefit your current your current job. You know the meetup and that is yeah. in Boise. Yes, um, I love being part of it. You do <laughs> most, a great job leading it. <laughs> well, most of the people that are involved in it, and even a lot of the people that present, they're not data scientists by that's title. A good they point. just love doing analytics they're software engineers they're product developers or owners or managers and they just love data science or love exactly. analytics and we were even Great having point. this question like if you have the title of bioinformatics is it different or better than data analytics or analyst or scientist and i'm like who cares as long as exactly. you love what you're doing uh, Anyone that knows the LinkedIn community well will probably know Angela Baltis. And she's just this beautiful woman that went through hell to get her PhD in bioinformatics. Is anyone going to say she's not a data scientist? You better not, or I'll be there to <laughs> slap you. Because she's just a brilliant woman, but more than anything, she was a phoenix. She went through hell to get to where she is. And she has a quite, you know, dramatic story, but you know, people telling her she wasn't good enough. or and, and she only recently started to, I got my GED. And I'm like, well, great. You know, because my mom taught GED students, by the way, when I was growing up. So I, I didn't have a negative connotation of it at all. But yeah, some people, uh, and oh, this is another good thing to point out, Sarah. Sometimes uh, in, in the tech community, probably more times than other communities, run into some harshness, some pecking order people that, you know, the only way to make themselves feel better is to put others down. And I've even seen the sweetest people turn into the most toxic people because our arts, the, the, our communities that we work in and our jobs can be so harsh. And I said, don't buy into it. Just find a way to get healing, find a good community, keep staying positive, keep focusing on the joy of the growth and learning and, and, Ignore the harshness. Even even when someone gives you harsh feedback, think, okay, I hear the harshness, but is there some truth there I can glean and grow from? Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. And It does take a lot of confidence, though, when someone yes. tries to knock your feet out from underneath you yes. and to just stand there, stand strong, know who you are, know what you want and how you want to be positive and, and to not respond to that negativity. It takes a lot of maturity and a lot of confidence. You know, I haven't met a human that's willing to get into data science yet who can't do it. It's, uh, you know, when I, when I think of the kind of crap that Angela had to go through when she shares it, 
And and I th- I'm I know I didn't go through as much crap, but when I think through the crap I had to go through at times the the discouraging moments where I felt put down or belittled by someone else. But well, okay, I'll just keep going, you know. And and uh, I'm glad I did because I love what I do. I love what we do. Mm-hmm. This these arts that we learn and practice. But oh, please don't worry if you don't know it all because no one does. Uh, and it's interesting. Even these advanced uh, AI researchers at OpenAI, for example, they're people too. I suspect they feel at times like, I, I can't believe I just did this research with this team when I still don't know this stuff. I think we all feel that way. There's it, just so much. It takes like a certain level of confidence too to admit you don't know something. Yes. And there are a lot of things I don't know. And I've been doing this almost a decade. And, and I'm still like, there's a lot of things I don't know. I'm... But I want to go out and I want to learn it and I want to be passionate about it. I want to teach others. And that that's the and you grow so much faster when you have that spirit. You just communicated and you join a community of other people that are going in that same direction that those five people that are all heading hopefully in that direction that are in your life. You know, I've seen a person do this where they saw their local community being inwardly harsh at times and they pointed it out. That was a good, brave thing to do. Um, I've never had to do it yet inside Integrated, but I think probably a time will arrive where I have to say, hey, guys, that's not us. Don't do that. But it, it can it can be said. I think uh, we need to remind each other, too, though. When we see someone acting that way, it's, it's really a poor mechanism to try to think more highly of themselves by putting someone else down. But even that person's doing it because of bad modeling or a past injury. And we can, we can take some courage from that, but also some compassion toward the bullies and the toxic individuals. One thing my mom taught me is hurt people hurt people. It's so true. They just pass on their hurt. And, and if, if, if you can go gently point that out to one of them, it's been my experience. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, people will say, Tom, you're such a nice guy. Do you ever get angry? Oh, if you want to see me get angry, um, try to browbeat one of my mentees, you know, one of my non-legal children. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it made me laugh on a show I was on. And they said, okay, Tom, why are you laughing? And I said, because I turn into this big mama grizzly bear when that happened. (laughs) But then I realized, well, you know what? That's not so true anymore. I'll actually private message him and say, hey, you seem to be... Uh, upset about something what's going on and there's only been one time I didn't end up making a friend that way mm-hmm. of someone who was almost near trolling uh, either one of my mentees or myself on LinkedIn and but the times where it didn't result in a friendship they just ran away too so I, why am I sharing that I just mean to say I think one of the best things we can do as technologists is start to kindly confront this when we see it because if it doesn't exist anymore we'll all grow faster and better i mean that sounds cheesy but reach out in love and be kind because (laughs) that's one of the best way to heal a hurt person is with kindness but it it may sound cheesy but even dennis rothman really emphasizes this for the Mm -hmm. same reasons we're talking about so yeah it's it's not just us little cheesy data scientists that say it even the great Dennis Rothman will say it too so what is your secret to staying motivated all the time ah other than kindness this (laughs) this might surprise everyone so um 
oh gosh, this is embarrassing. I can't count the times in the past where I ran from one overexcited endeavor to another, and even outside the engineering realms or the, the analytics realms. And it took me years to realize, Tom, you run from one thing to another and then you work so hard at it and you get burned out and you don't stick to any one thing. And, and it started to become an embarrassment to me. And it was a book by uh, Gary Keller, who's one of the founders of Keller Williams Real Estate Company that's nationwide. It's, it, he wrote a book called The One Thing. And I had to read it five times. I, I didn't have to read it five times. I, ent- I read it five times. chose to read it. <laughs> I chose to read it five times because I went, you know what? This is what I needed to hear. And um, it, it wasn't like it cured overnight. But now I, I say, Tom, you're trying to achieve a certain level of greatness in this area. And you're going to have to focus for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, but, and here's the biggest thing. You're going to have to avoid burnout. You won't be able to go, you know, 120 miles per hour all the time. You're going to have to take a break. And even this week, I, I'm getting better about it. But this weekend I sensed, um, so I'm writing a book with Guy Sankari with Pact. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been intense. <laughs> when are we going to see this book? Do you know? Uh, or is there an ETA? There's an ETA of fall. Ooh. We pray. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so we'll have it for Christmas, right? I hope so. I hope so. But the, the point being is this weekend, there was so much I wanted to do. And I thought, I'm going to watch two old Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movies with one of my sons. And I'm not going to sit at my computer very much. And in fact, when I did finally sit down to code, because I love to code, I coded something that had nothing to do with my job or my book, so <laughs> or our book. Sorry, guy. And uh, it 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 was quite, and it was fun, Sarah, because it was such a geeky thing I did. It was automation AI related, sort of, and and it worked, and I got it way beyond what I anticipated. But it, it was more of enjoyment coding than job coding or book coding, so it was kind of nice. But sorry to summarize. Don't try to do too many things. Focus on very few things and then avoid burnout. To me, that, that's the simple side of it that I've had to come. Boy, it took me decades to just really, okay, that's what it takes to succeed. And uh, Defining where that burnout is, though. You have to get burnt out at least once to figure out where the line yes, is. Yes. And sometimes you need a longer break than others. And I say, now I have a cue. Okay you know what? I don't have to drive to the office anymore. I can set my own hours. I just need to get my work done. So now on the weekends or in the mornings, I'm waiting for that motivation to kick in. I'm not trying to force it. I'm just saying when a guy, one of my non-legal sons, (laughs) he's from India, uh, Kushal Dev. I hope he's listening. He's, he he was trying to master. I'd, I'd gotten him excited about uh, Dave Asprey and his book Superhuman, and he, he was trying to get by on as little sleep as possible. I said, Kushal, before you master that, remember the key here is to not work until you're rested, because you need a really sharp mind to do good data science work. So, you know, 
and there may be times where you're fighting something or you've fatigued yourself too much. So don't push it so much. The key is to be rested. Yeah, if you can get ready, if you can get to that point in a few hours, great. But until then, just be rested. And and so I that was a long way of saying that's that turn on point I look for now to say, Yeah, I really want to go work now. I'm tired of laying in bed here or tired of taking a break and uh Finding that motivation and then yes. going at it. But understanding you, it, it takes, and you're doing your brain a favor. It grows in inexplicable ways when we just let it take a break. I mean, I find a lot of the time I can work at a problem for a couple hours, not find the solution, go lay down in bed. And then the next morning, my first thought is the answer to the yes. thing I was trying to code. And I've really learned, turn everything off at nine. Like yes. I have automatic timers. Everything shuts off in my office at nine. And oh, so I nice. can't, that is smart. I can't program after nine. And so it's, you got to take a break. And I definitely learned the eight or less hours. It sounds awful. I mean, I, I love working. I've definitely pulled 12, 16 hour days, especially in grad school, but the less hours you work because you're paid to think and you give your mind a break, go take a walk, take the dog for a walk, go do something. Yes. else and your yes. brain suddenly just clicks for whatever reason <clears throat> and your subconscious and anyway but that's about me what about you no there's a story <laughs> i love to share from grad school and it's changed a little bit now because of the great tools we have on our computer screens but it, it dawned on me when i was working on my phd when you hit a wall and you need to get creative to get around it the worst place to be is in front of computer screens mm-hmm. So I'd pick up a clipboard and a pen and I'd start walking across the Texas A&M University campus because that's where I did my grad school work. And Sarah, I kid you not, an average of 400 yards later, I had to sit down and write out what came to my mind. And I really was just trying to let it go. I wasn't trying to imagine, but my brain was still too active. But just getting out away from the screen, seeing other people, um, being in the hot, humid air of College Station, <laughs> Texas. Not always hot, humid. But now I'm finding my best solution tool is not VS Code or whatever your current ID is in Python. It's, uh, for me, Inkscape. I'll force myself to look at my architecture that I'm working on from my current AI, and I'll say, oh, that." is clear as crap right now. I need to improve this. And then my my current report, uh, she's wonderful to me, but she is not even a technical background. Mm-hmm. And uh, I figure, okay, Pam, can you listen to me? And if I can make it clear to her, then it, it's getting somewhere. It's that grandma level talk, you know? They call it rubber ducking sometimes. Yes, if exactly. you can explain what you're Dave doing and Andy. to a rubber duck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, and for those of you listening, if you don't own the Pragmatic Programmer, especially the 20th anniversary edition, you're robbing yourself. Because those guys, they talk so pragmatically about programming in their book titled The Pragmatic Programmer. Imagine that. Uh, It's so good. And they're they're very real down to earth. They're these coding gods, but they they talk to you like uh, you're just having coffee in the book. It's an awesome book. 
but the, yeah, rubber ducky. That's <laughs> where it comes from. I'm like getting this whole reading list from you. I'm like, I've, I'm like four or five <laughs> books deep so far. And then I got to put yours when it comes out uh, right on that list too. If you want to get overloaded with reading, uh, connect with uh, Christina Stathophilus. I probably butchered her, her name, but she's on LinkedIn and she reads a book a week and I can't read one a month, but then I am writing a book. So I think maybe that's okay. <laughs> The, the CEO of Count, I think he reads two or three books a week. And wow. he's just insane. And That's he does awesome this really though. cool thing where he has lunch with even everyone, has lunch with the CEO every two weeks. It's virtual because of COVID. Right. But it's just so like accessible. It's so That's different. That's so awesome. That is really, I, I admire that. That's really great. Well, <laughs> Mr. Yes. Or Tom, excuse me. I have a bad <laughs> habit of calling you Thumb because no, you, you can spell call it me Thumb. T-H-O-M. It's fun, yeah. <laughs> There's a funny story to that, too. But oh. yeah. It's short for Thomas. I'm trying to be uh, a Tom without the ass. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one. Thank you. <laughs> Do you have any closing advice for someone? If someone wanted to be a lead data scientist, what yeah. would you tell them? I would say... Learn, implement, rest, review, repeat. But the most important of those four steps of learn, implement, rest, review, is rest. Stay rested. In fact, now I, I, I was a competitive swimmer growing up, and only one of my kids followed me seriously into that. My, my adopted Chinese daughter, she's awesome. We're two peas in a pod. And um, I'm always having a reminder, Sarah, train hard. Not me, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. My, <laughs> my daughter. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Sarah, train hard, rest harder. And then once you get good at that, train even harder, but rest still harder. Because when I look back in time, I realized what held my swimming performance back. I was a senior class president at a big high school. I was kind of popular doing zany skits. You see my zany videos on YouTube, still, still, still zany, Tom. But seriously, I, I, I was so busy. I don't, and I had too much energy, so I didn't realize I was holding myself back by not resting more. And even now, I find, oh, you want to be a better data scientist? Then be as healthy as you can mm-hmm. and, and get plenty of rest, too. I definitely agree with all of that. Good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for it coming was on. Honor to be here. This was great fun. I'm. I think I had more fun with you than I would have if I'd have been on Joe Rogan's show. <laughs> In fact, th- it should be said that. Well, we oh, didn't this pass- show. Joe Rogan is like this show. Not this show is like Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not planning on passing any blunts around, so oh, unfortunately. Yeah. And that was not a slight at Joe, by the way. It's just that for data scientists, this is the place to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're hoping to encompass all of tech, so anyone that touches any technology. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. In fact, I, I'm eager for the STEM community to say to data scientists, yeah, you're one of us. <laughs> it would we're be great. We're not considered one of them? I, I do. I'm, I'm a STEM guy, and I, I say data science is just a natural ex- extension of what we all do. Um, if Boy, UL, I'm now friends with people in Germany that do a lot of renewable research. Mm-hmm. And they're doing great machine learning work for their jobs. But they're clearly STEM people. So 
I do. I mean, I consider data scientists STEM people. But does the greater STEM community think? I would think they would because there's so many engineers that are AI experts now that are machine learning experts. I mean, I'm, I'm coming from a stats background. Yeah. Almost every publication you make, you have to have a p-value. So usually someone has to do some form of stats if it's a hard science. Yeah. So I always thought statisticians and data science are very akin to one another. I, I think so. The, the difference is that, let's just take mechanical and electrical and civil engineering. Their methodologies are so well developed. We're still kind of developing good standard machine learning methodologies. You, can, you could find someone who's vertically brilliant who forgot to scale their features or, or, oh, oh yeah, I have to encode these text values. Just silly stuff, but it's not a reason to berate one another. It's to say, hey, let me help you. You, By the way, let's write out a little list. You should always kind of check before you go through a machine learning for production exercise. Someone that's been playing with cutting edge stuff, they may not have ever done a real machine learning for production type problem. That doesn't mean they're not smart. It just means... They haven't thought through the process yet. I mean, I've everyone I work with is they have PhDs not in data science. Oh, and so my like I hope the STEM community like embraces them as. But well, and and I kind of hope we that data science becomes part of the other curriculums more than data science becomes a whole separate curriculum. Um, oh, that's what I was gonna say. So data science is like what computer science was in the 70s. There's no clear defined terms for a lot of things. Exactly. You've heard me stand on my soapbox and be like, yeah. machine learning has a different definition in these three, four, five textbooks. And yeah, it's so it's true. the way computer science was in the 70s. And yes. give us 30 years and yes. we'll have this very defined approach. And yes. this is how we do stuff. But in the 70s, computer science was the Wild West. Do you punch cards and everything. Yes. And, and, it, and what you just said has been true of every field. Um, because data science is still up and coming, there's a lot of flux in the terminology. I mean, we can't even agree on what to call the objective function and, or the cost <laughs> function or what, what else is it called? You know, it's called different things. So, yeah, there's terminology flux, there's role flux. But right now it's kind of nice to be in the uh, – wild west version of it i think <laughs> it's exciting it is yeah well thank you so much for coming thank on. you this was great i really enjoyed it thanks for listening to sarah in tech feel free to email me at sarah at sarahintech.net or follow me on instagram at sarah in tech hope you enjoyed listening <laughs>